Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, let's go to the Word. We've been in a series now for the last several weeks, five Sundays uh, as well. Uh, This is number six. Sorry, I'm doing the math quickly in my head. How many weeks have we been in this? This is the sixth week, uh, 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 sixth Sunday of the fifth week of our entrusted campaign that we've been in the midst of. And today we're going to draw it to a conclusion in the series as we continue to uh, practice in the campaign. Today's message is entitled Advance in Mission, and we're going to look at the first 13 verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2. But before we get there, I kind of want to frame our thinking for how we will approach this. And the way I want to do that is by asking a question. Have you ever received a gift where in the receiving of it, you ask yourself, what in the world do I do with this? Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of gifts we receive, right? Like, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to talk about this gift or not, so I'm going to throw this out there, and if I'm not supposed to, then someone will have to warn me after. But when Kristen and I got married, some of the wedding gifts we received caused us to go, what are we supposed to do with this? And like, one of the ones that was most particular was not the nature of the gift, but the number of the gift. Like those little trays that say, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Little bread trays. We got like, I don't know, I remember 40 or 50 of those. Probably only six or eight, but it felt like 40 or 50. So very early on in our marriage, we established a closet. And out of that closet for the next number of years, when we had friends get married... Give us this day our daily bread. We want to encourage you to pray that. And we were genuine. We just didn't have to pay for anything for a number of years in the giving of those gifts, right? I mean, sometimes you get gifts and you think, what do I do with this? Now, sometimes the gift are not in number. Sometimes it's the nature of the gift that you get. Like maybe you have what I would call an eccentric aunt who does a lot of travel And you always know wherever she went this year, that's coming to Christmas. We're all getting a part of that, right? Uh, I had an aunt, Aunt Margie, who lost her husband relatively early in life, in her 50s. And so she just decided she's going to travel the rest of her life. And and it was kind of like, where's Aunt Margie? Made Waldo look stagnant. I mean, she was everywhere. Like, there's Mount Everest. There's Aunt Margie, you know? And like, sometimes you, you would get gifts. Or you would hear of gifts she gave and you're like, now what do you do with that? You know, like she rode Arabian horses across the desert from nomad camp to nomad camp. And this is a a clipping of the mane of the horse's hair that she gave to me. I'm like, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You can't throw it away. You love Aunt Margie. But it's horse hair, you know, not even long enough to fit on a violin. Some of y'all get that later. Those are the kinds of gifts you get and you go, what do I do with this? Sometimes it seems people think of the gospel that way. What do I do with this? Where do I go from now? You see, sometimes it seems the gift of grace 
is more theory than practice. But what Paul is telling Timothy here, and as we come to the second, uh, uh, the, the commitment Sunday, the final week of our campaign, and complete this entrusted series, we too need to be asking the question, how do we move forward from here? We, we've been given this gift. It's been entrusted to us. What do we do with it? We've looked at what the gift is in week one, the week's Following that, we looked at how it is we live as stewards of the Lord Jesus with this gift that we've been given. But today, how do we advance the mission of the gospel for the Lord Jesus from where we are to where he is leading? As I told you when I started this series from the previous chapter, chapter 1, Paul is writing to a much younger Timothy. He's not as young as he once was. That's a reality we all have to get used to. But he's younger than Paul. Paul is in a Roman prison. This is likely the last time he will pen any words to a young Timothy. What he says comes with weight and gravity of significance and importance. He's not writing hyperbole. He's chiseling things into the heart of a young Timothy who he loves and he knows may also face the same fate that Paul has found in prison and ultimately execution. Every chapter of this book grows weightier in significance and importance. And so let's go to our passage for today in chapter 2. And let me read verses 1 through 13 before we continue with the message. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Once Paul reminds Timothy of the gospel that's been entrusted to him, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 that we looked at in the beginning, now he is beginning to exhort him in how it is that the mission of the gospel should advance in the world. And chapter 2 begins in response to the last exhortation of chapter 1 where he said, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. 
He, in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, contrasts Timothy and another man named Onesiphorus against those who have deserted him in the work and are no longer with him. And now he turns to exhort Timothy and how it is he should labor to advance the gospel or the mission of the gospel. And friends, what I want us to understand today is this simple message. That the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is our means and our mission. It is the grace of God through Jesus Christ from first to last. The grace of God through Jesus Christ from first to last. This is our means. This is our mission. And I want to look at five exhortations for us to live as entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Exhortation number one comes out of verse one. It is this, that grace that comes through the gospel is God's power for us to serve his mission. Paul says to Timothy, grace is your strength to follow the pattern of sound words. Grace is your strength to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And that strength that comes from grace will only come from grace. You will not find it in any other source. You see, friends, the grace of God that saves is the grace from God that strengthens us to sustain with God. You don't get into the kingdom and then get something else from the kingdom. It's all grace. It's all grace. We don't become a Christian by grace, then a, 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 a shift where we begin to live by works or live by some other means that in some way accomplishes for God. The power of God that saves is the power of God that strengthens us daily, is the power of God that sustains us unto and throughout eternity. And friends, if you're not drawing from Jesus Christ, you'll never have the strength to do and to endure in serving him. Jesus Christ alone is our source of strength to serve his will. You see, friends, to not want more of Christ is to not know Christ at all. And maybe this is one of the greatest conflicts of a Christianized culture where it's so easy to wear the label of Christianity. To want to get in but not to be controlled by in any way to be compelled from the very love of Christ that is within us. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this very idea says this, there are many professing Christians who are content so long as they are just saved. But we are not content, he writes, with being barely alive spiritually. We do not wish to have our life shivering with cold, but we seek after comfort as well as existence. Friends, to not want more of Christ, to not seek Christ as your first and only source of strength, source of comfort, and source of defense in all things means that you are either not truly saved or you are to find yourself in a serious slumber and neglect of the grace that God has given to you. Because when God's grace is our strength, Jesus Christ is our all in all. All I have is Christ. 
He is all I want. The key is that if we are to be strengthened by God's grace, we must regularly take it in, both in response and in proportion to the demand of our need. This is what Paul is exhorting Timothy when he says, you then be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. Whatever the need, turn to Christ and let him address that need. Whatever the extent or the amount or the depth or the height, let Christ be that for you. Only there will you find sufficiency. By the word of God and the spirit of Christ. By prayer, by singing, by fellowship of the saints. Grace that is greater than our sin teaches us that the only thing we must do is take it in, take it in, take it in to our lives. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Grace alone gets us in with God and grace alone keeps us with him. The second exhortation we see in verse two that flows immediately out of this, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The second exhortation today is that the gospel is our mission to entrust to others who will serve to make more disciples. You see, the strength that comes from God's grace is the very power that's exercised in the mission of the gospel. And he instructs here that we are entrusted with that sound doctrine. And that doctrine that we have learned, we are to instill, we are to teach, we are to train, we are to equip, we are to encourage one another. And we are to hand that off to as many as we absolutely possibly can. Surely Paul is exhorting Timothy in the role that God has assigned him as a leader among a local congregation and this very teaching will bear itself out but a short time later in this very book when he is speaking of elders and pastors in the church and how they are to be qualified and competent in order to teach and to instruct the flock. But this principle is not only for the highest echelon or some kind of superior force of Christianity. This is fun fundamental basic Christianity for every follower of Jesus Christ, that the gospel of Jesus Christ that's been entrusted to you is given to you not only for you, but through you to as many people as long as you live. The broader principle remains. In all our disciple making, we're handing off the gospel to every person to share it with others. In all our disciple making, we're not giving some kind of other good social measure. We're not trying to give some kind of other friendship garnering. We're not trying to give some other kind of trite cliche to get us out of having to bear someone else's burden when we ask, how was your day? And they unload it on us. Oh, come on. I should have got an amen for that one. Right? Ooh, I shouldn't have asked that question. Right? No, friends, we're we're not giving some false hope. We don't have some kind of false gospel that we tag Jesus' name to, but we bring them back to the very essence of Christ and Christ crucified. That is sufficient. That's all we have, but it will be more than adequate for whatever we face. That's why we sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. That's not trite cliche. That's grace upon grace. 
And if you've not experienced enough grace to meet your need, if you've not had enough grace to meet the need to the extent, the depth or the height that you need, keep drawing. Don't stop drinking from the fountain of life. And what we take in and what we pour out is all of Jesus. It's the power of God by which we live and the gospel of God for which we live. Christians serve the gospel by the strength we receive from God's grace through the gospel. The gospel is our means. It is our mission. That's all we've got. If not for Christ, we are wasting our life. The third exhortation in verse 3. True gospel mission is always accompanied by suffering. Verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Boy, this would be so much easier for us to pass over if Paul had not been beaten repeatedly throughout his life, imprisoned, and even currently imprisoned for the last time before he would be executed for his work. But because of where he wrote from and out of which he penned these words, we must pause to consider the gravity and the weight of the message that they give to us. Share in suffering, Paul exhorts, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You see, friends, suffering doesn't mark you as a poor follower of Christ, quite the opposite. Suffering accompanies all true gospel mission because the enemy is real and he sifts those who serve Jesus faithfully. But hear me, the person who's not been searched by the Spirit is not prepared to be sifted by Satan. Samuel Rutherford, a famed 17th century pastor theologian, wrote this very, very small volume called The Loveliness of Christ. It's a treasure far unmatched in what it provides to the size in which it's contained. And he writes this, If your Lord call you to suffering, be not dismayed. There shall be a new allowance of the king for you when ye come into it. One of the softest pillows Christ hath is laid under his witness's head, though often they must set down their bare feet among thorns. That's beautiful. I love that phrase. If the Lord calls you to suffering, be not dismayed. There's a new allowance of the king for when you come into it. I don't know how things work today, but I know how things worked when I was a kid. And allowance day was always my favorite. I was finally going to be able to pay for the stuff I already had gotten. Maybe that's the part some of us can relate to. Dad would sit us down and dole the nickels and the dimes and the quarters out. And I went from being a poor pauper to a rich man. Or at least getting out from the person I owed And not being have to under threat of whatever that physical violence was for that eight or nine year old. Whatever it may have been. But when you think about Christ's provision of grace. He says whatever God calls you to. The king will reach into 
the depths of the kingdom's resource. And he will bestow upon you an allowance that will not only pay your debt, but it will suffice for life. Why is it that we read of heroes of the Christian faith, many that died as martyrs, horrific deaths, yet for some reason we, we think we are exempt? Oh, we don't do that anymore today. Do you realize there's been more Christian martyrs in the last hundred years than all the other years before? Combined. Yes, that's how good we have it here. Or even at the thought of it and suffering for Christ, people become dismayed with God. What's wrong with God? Why would he allow this? Many interpret suffering for the Christian as some kind of a negative blight. What's wrong with them? Or some kind of a spiritual infection? Do they have shots for that? Will you just stay away from me? And so they run away. And in running, they so often run into some safe, comfortable setting of false teaching, false hope, pure deception, and many even into apostasy. Let me ask you a question, friends. You may never be burned alive at the stake for Jesus Christ. But will you endure if you are roasted by the world? Paul exhorts us to share and endure because our suffering will never be greater than God's power to bring good and glory from it. Rather, he instructs in how it is that we are to remain faithful in the face of suffering. He uses three analogies, the analogy of a soldier, the analogy of an athlete, the analogy of a farmer. Now, that soldier analogy is the most prominent example that he will use to remind us that the very nature of our labor is most akin to the likeness of warfare. That's why Ephesians 6 is a whole chapter devoted to this. But that's not the only place he speaks of it. His analogies actually provide principles for us for facing suffering as we serve the gospel of Jesus Christ. That analogy of the soldier introduces us to the principle of commitment, focus. That the one who serves Jesus Christ stays focused on Christ's mission and doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs that distract from the mission. This principle reminds us that the way that we live today should be aligned with the very purpose for which we exist, Christ. We remain committed because we remember why God has saved us, to be light and salt, to bear witness and faithful testimony. And I do hope I do not get stung by that. And now I won't. And that'll be on the recording for today. <laughs> Let's go to the second principle. How do we endure? No, I need to move back. I haven't finished with this one yet. That's why Paul's teaching on the armor of God is not about Christian fashion. It's about daily provision. It's about daily necessity. You ever think about that? 
I mean, maybe we, we purchase our Christian armor as he lays it out so eloquently in Ephesians 6, and we learn the attributes of every piece of the armor and where it goes and how it ought to be applied and how it is that we are to suit up and armor and put on the whole armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, we might be able to take our stand. And after we've done everything, just to stand. But then we hang it in prominent display. And, you know, whenever that day comes... I'm going to put that on and I'll be victorious. Today is that day. Because every day is that day. That's what Paul is saying. The armor of God is not some uh, uh, clothing wear or not some cliche for Christians to use only in the most difficult times. But to recognize the evil of every day in the world in which we live. And to be dressed, ready for action. Paul states to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The principle of commitment tells us, live ready. The second principle of the athlete is the principle of self-control and discipline. This, this refers to how it is that an athlete competes because of his motivation to win. And he uses the analogy and, and, and he even expands upon it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, when he states this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners win, but only one receives the prize? I realize that can be very destabilizing in our culture today that gives a prize for everything to everyone. But Paul says, so run that you may obtain it. What is he telling us? We don't run to lose. We don't run for second place. We run for the very place by which we have been put through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are overcomers because he has overcome. That's what determines the way we run. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see, friends, the principle of self-control and discipline is a principle that says we understand the importance of the race. Therefore, that informs how we prepare every day for it. The third principle the analogy of the farmer teaches us the principle of preparedness. And it teaches us very simply this. Just as with the farmer, that the daily tasks of the farmer are never about that day. That farmer gets up, usually before the sun rises. He goes about the feeding and the procuring of the things that he needs to take for that day. The fixing the replacing, the repairing, the managing, whatever he goes about, but the labors of that day are not for that day. 
Therefore, a day that will come on the day. Whether he's breaking up fallow ground, whether he's imparting the seed or covering it or watering it or whatever he may be doing in his daily tasks, those tasks are not for that day. They are for the day. And yet he labors ever so diligently because he wants to be prepared when the harvest comes. Friends, we will always succumb to suffering if we are not prepared for it. In an amazing work titled The Character of God's Workman, a Chinese pastor named Watchman Nee captures this in a chapter of his book called Have a Mind to Suffer. The chapter is based on 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, where Peter writes, For as much then as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm ye yourselves also with the same mind. And in his chapter, Watchman Nee exhorts, not of the suffering itself, but rather of our preparedness for it, of our willingness to suffer. Listen to what he writes. Hence to suffer is something chosen by us. It is not ordained. We choose before God to suffer. We are willing to do so for the sake of serving the Lord. To arm ourselves with such a mind is a basic characteristic of any person who would wish to serve God. Without such willingness, we will not be able to serve well in anything. Lacking this, our service will be but superficial. And then he goes on. Having the mind to suffer speaks of my readiness before God to suffer. I am willing to go through trial. I choose the path of hardship. It is up to the Lord whether or not to put suffering in my path. But on my part, I am always prepared to suffer. Christians develop a mind to suffer for the gospel, that we might ready ourselves. Why? Because we know that grace will always be greater still. Verses 8 through 10, we move to the fourth exhortation. And Paul reminds young Timothy of a sufficient motivation for our suffering when he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, The offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. The fourth exhortation is this. Remember, the glory of Jesus Christ is greater than any suffering. You see, friends, Christians do not endure suffering because we have some kind of a sick dark, demented mind that loves it. Christians do not uh, endure suffering because in some way we think we'll earn greater favor with God or we'll in some way be able to establish some leverage with God to get something from him that we want that he's failed or is not willing to give to us. No, we endure suffering for one reason, because our Lord endured suffering for us. That's why Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Christ and Christ alone is our life and he is our victory. He's the offspring of David. Christ and Christ alone is the fulfillment of God's promise to establish an eternal kingdom uh, that crosses all the ages into eternity. 
And he reminds us that Christ is worthy of any suffering that we endure because he is the good news that we proclaim to the world so that even in our suffering as we endure for Christ, we tell the world he is worthy. He is worthy. And though we may become contained or chained, the word of God is never bound is never bound. Remember Jesus Christ to endure suffering that as many as possible may hear the gospel and obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You know, as I studied that this week, I couldn't help but think, and I think as I share this with you, you're going to agree with me. All I could think about was the sport of rugby. Man, People are going to think I'm not funny. (laughs) Were you not thinking about the sport of rugby and talking about that? It may be the greatest illustration for us here. It, It really may be. Have you ever watched rugby? I don't advise it. It's one of the most graphic, violent TV shows you'll ever watch. Filled with some of the most horrific individual specimens of humanity that you could imagine. These are beasts. And they come out on the field doing all these dances and and putting, I think some of them have injured themselves in the locker room just for the game itself, you know. And I mean, here they come, men scantily clad, most of them already wrapped up from wounds that won't heal, salivating, slobbering, spitting, sweating, and what do they do? They all just come right in on a big hug. Oh. And the ball is dropped into the middle of that huddle, and the huddle begins to move around as one amoeba. And then one man dives under through the legs of another, pulls the ball out of the middle, hurls it to somebody to his side, and all of a sudden both teams spread out across the field, and the ball begins to advance by moving from one to the other, one side and back this way. And as soon as whoever has the ball does that flip, there is no question, wham, a concussion inducing to insanity slams him to the ground but no flag is thrown no feelings got harmed in this tackle you don't tackle the guy with the ball you tackle the guy that just had the ball that's how rugby works and then if he is able to get up and and move himself into position because the ball's coming back you got to be there for it I mean they take them out But the ball, it just keeps advancing down the field. Christian, do not be dismayed by suffering because the word of God is not bound. And in any suffering that you endure, God will take care of you. I was also reminded of some old school When this hymn began to play in my study, be not dismayed, whate'er betide, God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide, God will take care of you. Through days of toil when heart doth fail, God will take care of you. When dangers fierce your path assail, God will take care of you. 
All you may need, he will provide. Trust him and you will be satisfied. God will take care of you. Lonely and sad from friends apart, he will give peace to your aching heart. God will take care of you. No matter what may be the test, God will take care of you. Lean, weary one, upon his breast. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day and in every way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. Remember Jesus Christ, Christian. And know that the King, God, will take care of you. You need not fear suffering because Jesus Christ is greater and the word of God is unbound. Verses 11 through 13 provide our fifth exhortation for today. When Paul appeals to the passages that Timothy would have been weaned upon from his earliest days and from which he would have been instructed and encouraged and even throughout his life he would have drawn great strength from And we are reminded in this fifth exhortation that our faithfulness is determined by our hiddenness in Christ. He reminds Timothy of what's been said through the scriptures to remind him of God's faithfulness. So do not miss this, friend. Your faithfulness will never be determined by your giftedness. Your faithfulness to Christ will never be determined by your personal grit. It will only be determined by your hiddenness in Christ. In Christ alone. When we remain faithful with Christ, we remain faithful in all things at all times. But if we run by our own understanding, counter to Proverbs 3, 5, that says, lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord. If we run by our own capability against the very instruction of Proverbs 3, 6 that tells us not only are we not to lean on our own understanding or to follow our own ways, but we are rather to acknowledge him no matter what our capacity, capability, our feeling, or our desire. Because when we do these things, we run out from our own provision in Christ. That's why he says this saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Christ, Christ is our hiddenness with God. Christian, your faithfulness to Jesus Christ and the gospel in life is measured and rewarded only by this, that by faith you remain hidden with Christ in God. The message of the gospel, it is our means, it is our mission. The grace of God through Jesus Christ from first to last.